I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. I'm Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. And today I interview uh, for a second time, Anthony Vitarelli, who's a former federal prosecutor who uh, a few months ago walked us through the first round of Mueller indictments. Uh, This time he walks us through the new round of indictments that came down late last week. Uh, Anthony uh, was at the U.S. Department of Justice, and he was also a senior advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Treasury. He began his legal career clerking for Supreme Court Justices David Souter and Stephen Breyer. And at law school, he was the editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. For the first eight minutes of this uh, podcast. The uh, audio is a, a little weird with the mic, uh, but then those issues go away after that. So bear with us. Let's jump right in. Andy Morelli, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. So uh, we just heard uh, a uh, we just heard from uh, the special counsel. Uh, it was announced that uh, new charges have been brought against uh, thirteen Russians and three organizations. Uh, can you walk us through what the charges are? Yeah. So at a high level, this is the special counsel laying out the information that he has with respect to the organized effort within the Russian government to sow discord in the United States political system and in particular to influence the 2016 presidential election uh, in the favor of Donald Trump and against Hillary Clinton. Uh, So in short, you know, there's eight counts of the indictment, but Really, the one that's worth focusing on the most is the first count, which is brought against all 13 individuals and the three organizations, uh, the Internet Research Association, the Concord Management and Concord Catering. And this is a conspiracy to defraud the United States charge. And basically, the I think it's actually worth reading. So the object of the conspiracy was impairing, obstructing and defeating the lawful government functions of the United States by dishonest means in order to enable the defendants to interfere with U.S. political and electoral processes, including the presidential election. And then it really focuses on the Federal Election Commission, the DOJ and the State Department as the agencies that were um, being interfered with by the Russians. So this is at a high level, the special counsel saying these people were trying to stop the otherwise normal functioning of the U.S. government with respect to the election. And uh, these people broke federal law in doing so. Is it safe to say that the defendants are unlikely to see the inside of a U.S. courtroom? I think it's really unlikely. So let's imagine that this were Canada uh, instead of Russia. What would happen in the ordinary course would be uh, immediately upon the um, unsealing of the indictment, uh, red notices would be issued against all of the defendants. So if they tried to travel, they would be picked up at whatever airport they were in, uh, detained by the Canadian government if they were in Canada. And then by function of a bilateral extradition treaty with the United States, the federal justice department here and the Canadian officials would, um, coordinate to ensure the swift extradition of those individuals to the United States to face trial. I think it is fair to say it will not be Vladimir Putin's highest priority to ensure these people get their way to the United States to face trial. The other two buckets of charges. So one is the count two focuses uh, against the IRA and two particular individuals. And it's uh, another conspiracy count, but with respect to wire fraud and bank fraud. And the idea simply here is that they conspired with others to open uh, U.S. bank accounts and PayPal accounts uh, or a company that sounds a lot like PayPal uh, under false names in order to 
send and receive money in and out of the United States. And they use that money to purchase things like Facebook ads and other uh, forms of uh, political organizing. And so uh, that's really the uh, that's the, the second primary bucket. And then aggravated identity theft comprises the remaining charges. And the idea there being that uh, they used people's identity to open bank accounts and to open these uh, kind of corresponding accounts to facilitate their conspiracy. Putting it all together, you're, they, the reason why they had false identity and false bank accounts is because they wanted to engage in American political activities without being you know, known for who they actually were. That's right. And, and also the fact that it is illegal for foreign actors to do certain things. And only uh, U.S. persons uh, can undertake certain activities and make certain payments with respect to American political campaigns. And so they um, <laughs> conspired with others, including, it seems, uh, another individual who has pleaded guilty now, uh, the um, charging documents of which were um, released on Friday. Uh, that is uh, Richard Panetto. And again, that hasn't made a ton of press, but basically this is a guy who operated an online business called Auction Assistance from 2014 to 2017, uh, in which he sold um, U.S. individuals' identities for exactly these purposes. And it seems that Panetto was working with uh, these Russians and that's, uh, he was kind of a middleman for them in obtaining U.S. identities. So again, that's just another guilty, an actual conviction that has uh, occurred as a result of the Mueller investigation. And they held on to that for what, like two weeks? Again, you know, they're not in any rush. Uh, I, I think that, and I think that that's, look, I mean, we got to talk about the bigger issues here, but like the, the, there is a significant tactical component here to what the Mueller team is doing. Um, you know, they're releasing information when they want to release information and when it is advantageous for them to release information. Um, so, you know, for instance, the president saying that the, this indictment vindicated him uh, and doesn't present any evidence of collusion, uh, it's kind of, it's almost a complete non sequitur. There's nothing, to be sure, he's, he's actually correct in the sense that there's nothing in this indictment that uh, squarely says Donald Trump was involved, including the Russians, but there's also nothing uh, in this indictment that says that you know, Paul Manafort was involved with colluding with the Russians. And so just because it's not here doesn't mean it isn't true. If it were true, it wouldn't necessarily be in this indictment. Yeah. And let's come back to that. Uh, from a strictly legal perspective, um, based on your experience, this indictment was, from what I, under, if I understand, it was a speaking indictment, which you know, describes more than what is necessary, from what I understand. Is that a common practice? Yes. Yeah, so the, the the long indictment, the thirty seven page indictment, is a speaking indictment, uh, which means that it really describes in some depth the evidence that the government says proves out the charges that are in the indictment. An indictment to be legally sufficient really needs to simply state the factual predicates giving rise to the crime. So, for instance. The first big charge, the 18 U.S.C. 371 conspiracy to defraud the United States. The elements of conspiracy to defraud the United States really um, just show that they need to show that you know the defendant engaged in some kind of dishonest practice um, in connection to a program administered by an agency of the U.S. government um, with an intent to kind of frustrate the purpose there thereof and. That can be described very briefly. It doesn't have to be 37 pages. Um, and you see this in the, for instance, in the Papadopoulos charging doc document. It's very, very brief. 
the actual criminal information itself. Um, and the same is true for Panetto. So here, they're really laying out all of this evidence. And what is significant about that is, uh, and contrast this with the statement of the intelligence community with respect to these same activities in early 2017. Uh, you know, one way of looking at this superficially is, we've already known that Russia interfered with our election. It's been the consensus view of the U.S. intelligence community stated with high confidence for over a year. It's also been reaffirmed by every, uh, you know, the leaders of the CIA and the other components of the intelligence community every time when they're asked under oath about it. What is new here is Mueller saying, yes, that is true. And I have sufficient evidence that I believe I could prove these crimes beyond a reasonable doubt using evidence that is admissible in a federal criminal proceeding, which is a far, far, far higher thing, far, far, far higher standard than simply the intelligence community saying, we know this to be true. You know, one other part of this indictment that's interesting is that uh, it appears that the forensics uh, being described are pretty deep and specific. And so they, they talk about intercepts of communication uh, among Russians. Uh, this from the outside seems like a, an unusual step and one that, um, that reveals a certain, you know, a pretty significant extent of U S uh, intelligence gathering. Um, did that jump out to you? It definitely did because you have quotes from the individual Russians who are involved in the activities. And that suggests either intercepted emails, text messages, Facebook messages or other correspondence, potentially wiretaps, potentially cooperating witnesses. I think what we, again, so to be clear, we don't know exactly the source of those, uh, those details, other than we know for sure that it appears that Facebook, the corporation has fully, has, you know, stated that it has fully cooperated with the Mueller investigation, thus turning over at least, for instance, reach outs from these Russian, uh, the Internet Research Agency to what it, what the indictment refers to as unwitting U.S. citizens who were contacted to, for instance, facilitate political rallies. So the specificity with which the indictment describes the evidence available to the Mueller team uh, should be a real wake-up call to any U.S. persons who were witting cooperators with the uh, Russians in this case. Yeah, and so talk more about that. So do you think that this leaves open... The door, like the door is open for winning, uh, um, you know, what we basically call collusion, you know? So I think like uh, a lot of people are, are cheering, uh, you know, some people on the, on the right in particular are trying to use this to say, well, you know, this is saying it was unwitting, uh, you know, and, and people just didn't know. Um, what about this tells you that the door is potentially still open for, um, for knowing cooperation? The most important point is the one I'm kind of referred to at the beginning with respect to the legal sufficiency of an indictment requiring only a bare bones statement of the factual predicates for the legal charges. To the extent the Mueller team has more evidence, more damning evidence, it was under no obligation to include it in this indictment. So for instance, if the Mueller team has evidence of actual on the ground cooperation between the Internet Research Agency and others involved in the Trump campaign or other campaigns. It had no obligation to include it here. I think it's fair to say that there is no evidence that that evidence exists. But the end zone celebrations that we're seeing on the right, I think, are premature. 
And so in the, the press conference, uh, Rosenstein uh, kept saying in this indictment, and some people used that terminology to say, uh, to potentially uh, highlight the fact that he was emphasizing that um, he was like, he was kind of closing off the corners of this paper and saying, you know, I'm only talking about what's in this document, not what is potentially true or more to come. Did that stand out to you? Yeah. The repeated use of the term in this indictment, I think is, um, I mean, he, he's clearly being very careful. I think that, again, we're now entering the realm of speculation. I think it is not unreasonable uh, to assume that in the uh, White House meeting that was reported between Rosenstein and the president before Rosenstein gave his press conference that uh, the, the president asked him to say that uh, the indictment included no uh, evidence of collusion or otherwise. And I don't think Rosenstein would have had a problem doing that, which is what he did, because there is nothing in the indictment. But he certainly wasn't going to issue a more blanket, uh, you know, clean bill of health when nothing in the indictment indicates that. And so uh, one notable fact about this indictment is that it doesn't really touch on email hacking um, and computer hacking. That's not a charge from what I understand. Um, What does that tell you? Well, I think what it says is that there's more to come. I think that the clear focus here was the activities of the Russian government with respect to using uh, new channels of political discourse in the United States to influence the election. Um, But it's, it's also fair to say that, you know, you have, uh, evidence in, you can kind of look at the timeline and there have been some great sources, um, which, you know, maybe you can link to lawfare and just security and others have kind of charted some of this out, but you have, you know, the, the phishing email that went to Podesta was sent in early March, 2016. And then two weeks later, the Panama papers were released in the beginning of April. And then, April 6th is when the Internet Research Agency expressly started supporting Trump and opposing Hillary. So that was right after Trump clinched the nomination in early 2016. So the the you know, the coincidence of those events, it's it's something that's certainly notable. And to the extent that there is a parallel uh, Russian email phishing campaign going on in another IRA like organization, and that's something that's clearly within the investigatory ambit of the special counsel. I would not be surprised if we heard more from that. Yeah. And I think I also heard um, some speculation that uh, this timeline overlaps uh, in, a, in a notable way with um, activity in, in 2014 in Ukraine and that um, the Russians felt that the United States might have meddled in uh, the Ukraine and, and stoked protests. And that might have been a motivation uh, to stand up this program. I mean, that seems like the most likely explanation for it. It's certainly the most significant U.S.-Russia nexus event that occurred at the time when these activities appear to have begun. And I think that uh, the president cited that 2004 origin as exculpatory uh, in the sense that he's saying that, oh, you know, president, he hadn't even been running for president when this all started. And putting aside the evidence that he had clearly decided to run for president by that time, I think that's completely irrelevant. I think that the evidence shows here that the Internet Research Agency was uh, their primary focus at the outset, uh, certainly in the early, the late 2015 timeline, early 2016 timeline, was spreading derogatory information about Hillary Clinton and, in fact, also Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and bucking up Donald Trump and, in part, Bernie Sanders. And 
that continued until it was clear who the nominees were going to be. And then by the beginning of April 2016, it was expressed that they were supporting Trump and opposing Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I think it's an important point to underscore because I think, you know, on the left, there's a lot of there's a huge desire to see this as a uh, reflection of uh, a loyalty some blood pack between Trump and Putin because of business interests or bribery or um, blackmail or whatever, which, you know, there, there certainly are a lot of super questionable financial uh, ties and, and, um, and um, murky dealings between the Trump organization and Russia and, uh, and super strange behavior on behalf of the president as it relates to Russia. Uh, but this to me seems like, you know, the fact that this was about Stein uh, Bernie Sanders and Trump, and that the, the timing of this, uh, you know, it, it, it goes back way before Trump was super viable, tells us that this could have been um, Trump agnostic at first. I think that the overarching goal began from the Russian perspective with the idea that they were trying to sow discord in the U.S. political system and to undermine the validity of democratic elections generally. The idea being that if you create doubt in the legitimacy of elections, one, it blunts the critique of the undemocratic elections that occur in Russia and also blunts generally the force of the argument that democratic elections are superior to uh, authoritarian um, ruling regimes. And so I think that was their probably original goal. They certainly seem to have coalesced around a more particularized goal. I think that, you know, paragraph 43A of the indictment describes a internal outline of the Internet Research Agency's um, themes for future content. And they say, quote, specialists were instructed to post content that focused on politics in the United States and to, quote, use any opportunity to criticize Hillary and the rest, paren, except Sanders and Trump. We support them. So it became it became quite explicit. And so uh, in looking ahead, uh, you've got a what seems like a super disciplined team uh, that Mueller's put together. Uh, they've basically been leak proof. It seems like anytime something's leaked out, uh, it's safe to say at this point that it's extremely likely to have been shared by counsel to uh, various people who've been um, involved, like, you know, on the outside of this investigation or the White House, or one could speculate, but that this is a, this is a team that seems to hold its information well, which means that we have no idea uh, what exactly is coming next. Um, but I think uh, intelligent speculation would be that uh, this was a this is potentially a precursor, uh, establishing the idea that um, that there was such an extensive uh, campaign by the Russian government to meddle in our elections is a is a predicate to whatever comes next. Um, is that your sense here? So I think that what um, there's a, there are a couple objectives here. So one aspect of the U.S. federal conspiracy statute is that uh, when you become a co-conspirator to a existing conspiracy, you become liable for all foreseeable acts of that conspiracy. And so while it may be difficult for the Mueller team to make out substantive criminal law violations against U.S. persons, meaning U.S. citizens who are uh, not directly involved in this uh, Russian electoral interference. If one of those U.S. citizens nonetheless agreed with someone involved in this conspiracy, 
with them to participate in their conspiracy and took an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy with the knowledge that that was their intent. They, their intent was to further the goals of the conspiracy. That person is then liable for the whole ambit of the conspiracy's foreseeable consequences. And so uh, the federal conspiracy statute is an enormously powerful tool that prosecutors use to um, increase the scope of liability for people for uh, large criminal enterprises in which they may have participated. And so I think that laying the, the deep factual predicate for this particular conspiracy is an important uh, foundation for potentially bringing in others who may have knowingly joined this conspiracy and taken an overt act in furtherance of it. And one thing that's really weird about this whole thing uh, is that, you know, Trump on the campaign trail openly encouraged the Russians to, uh, to, you know, in, the, in that case, if I remember correctly, it was to um, either release emails that they had or in some way was encouraging them to be involved here. So you have the, you know, the, the, the candidate just publicly encouraging another country to meddle in our election. Um, I don't think if I remember correctly, you might remember the exact quote. I don't think it was, um, I don't think he was encouraging them to engage in this kind of misinformation campaign, but what, like, what do we make of Trump's like public persona around this and whether there's anything um, you know, beyond obstruction, which I think there's, there's this case we've made that he's, he's publicly, uh, put himself in a bind on obstruction charges, but anything relating to like what we saw in this indictment that, um, in Trump's own public behavior that might give you some red flags. Yeah. So just to fill in the factual pieces here. So back in July of 2016, uh, when there was some ambiguity as to whether, Hillary Clinton had uh, deleted certain emails that at one time were on um, the private email server uh, that she had used during her time as Secretary of State. His quote was, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. And so, uh, <clears throat> you know, that has uh, a lot of, I think, derogatory implication. It could be, I think, uh, somewhat implausibly explained away as uh, not an invitation to hack someone's emails, but that's, to me, the most likely explanation for it. Uh, I, I don't think that, I don't, my, my personal view is that there's been no evidence to date that Donald Trump was sitting at, um, you know, the conference table uh, populated by all the bad guys in Russia and elsewhere, and was himself personally orchestrating uh, this giant conspiracy. I think what we are much more likely to see evidence of is individuals who were approached by people who were affiliated with the Russian government. This is, again, similar to the Trump Tower meeting that Don Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort participated in with um, the Russian lawyer who uh, had advocated for uh, repeal of the Magnitsky Act uh, and had promised derogatory information about Hillary Clinton. I think that that is much more of the kind of conduct that we're likely to see emerge as opposed to some kind of giant smoking gun that there was a express agreement to conspire with the Russian government. The, 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 the reason I think that is that there has just been too much lying, which seems so, um, inconsistent with, um, complete innocence across the board. The number of times that members of the Trump team have had to, 
correct misstatements with respect to contacts with the foreign government that's between Jeff Sessions or Jared Kushner, uh, errors on their security clearance forms, um, the termination of Jim Comey, and then the multiple explanations that were given for that termination, uh, the fact that the president will not publicly embrace the unanimous conclusions of the United States intelligence community, and the fact that even yesterday on the you know February 17th, the H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, said that it's incontrovertible that Russia uh, interfered in our election. And the president, in a late Saturday evening tweet, felt compe- felt compelled to nonetheless say, throwing his National Security Advisor under the bus, saying that McMaster had forgot to mention that there was no evidence of con- collusion. It is, it, it is, you know, look, it's either a giant uh, effort to obscure some truth or just uh, evidence of just a tremendous residual insecurity about the legitimate his the legitimacy legitimacy of his own election due to his loss of the popular vote. Yeah, I think it's extremely unlikely that it's the latter. I think it's given how strange this president is in this White House, it's always a possibility <laughs> given the ego uh, that's involved here. But I think I agree with you. I think it's extremely unlikely. And I think you know, you st- it's starting to come into focus. I think what's interesting about this particular indictment is that it fills in a lot of details uh, that I, at least I personally wasn't thinking about a ton um, as it related to some of the earlier stuff that we talked about in the last podcast. Like this is about the misinformation campaign itself, whereas a lot of this stuff around Manafort and Gates we'll get to in a second. Uh, yeah, I think there's some breaking news today on this uh, with Gates, but it seemed like obviously there's a lot of murky financial transactions that Manafort um, uh, got caught up in that were in many ways unrelated to this. But um, there, there seemed to be this narrative building about the Natasha Veselnitskaya meeting and like um, just lying about uh, various contacts with the Russians where like we don't even know what they were you know, supposed to talk about. Uh, but it seemed like they were heading in a direction to start to fill in the details of what that contact was like between the Trump campaign and Russia itself. Um, and Papadopoulos obviously, uh, you know, seemed to be a critical part of that story as well. This seems to be, uh, further down the line where it's, you know, the contact with the American people and how, uh, this, whatever this operation was, whether there was, uh, a strong tie between the Trump organization, which I agree, it seems like there's a lot of smoke there. Uh, it was, how did they get it in front of the American people? Uh, and so it's almost like, uh, this indictment is more, uh, further down the line. And there's like a big piece of this picture in the middle that has not been filled in yet. I think that's right. And I think that um, there is ultimately going to be a question of whether there was some degree of willful blindness on the part of Trump campaign folks. So, you know, willful blindness is a legal doctrine that relates to whether you had knowledge that something was going on. And it's a common law doctrine that basically allows a jury to impute knowledge to you if you took intentional action to shield yourself from what was likely to be uh, criminal knowledge of a fact that would have inculpated you. And the question is whether there were sufficient red flags around these contacts. Again, we don't know whether there were sufficient red flags around these contacts to basically have made the Trump campaign willfully blind to the source of these outreaches. Um, You know, again, there's nothing in the indictment here that I think gets to that level. I think a lot of the, um, I think a lot of the content in the Facebook ads and Facebook groups and Instagram ads uh, was really bad and and not kind of 
I think you had to be like a little credulous to believe it, but um, I think that nonetheless, uh, that's something that people are going to look at. Uh, I mean, look, I, I think there's a whole other issue here that's worth you know just just noting, which is um, the intelligence community has been absolutely meticulous in stating that none of its conclusions relate to the impact on the outcome of the election. And they have been completely consistent in saying that their conclusions do not speak to that question. Nonetheless, President Trump has repeatedly uh, asserted that conclusion on the intelligence community's behalf. And I don't think anyone is in in a position today to reach the alternative conclusion. But I do think it is worth noting that some of the tactics that are described in this indictment uh, do bear on that question. Uh, for instance, uh, in paragraph, well, I was going to say paragraph 46, they uh, talk about the efforts to encourage U.S. minority groups not to vote in the election or to vote for third party candidates. And look, I mean, in a state of, in the state of Michigan where Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton by 10,700 votes and Jill Stein got 51,000 votes, I think it's not unreasonable to start asking some uh, really smart political scientists with digging in and seeing, wow, really, we have a disinformation campaign that discouraged likely Hillary Clinton voters from going to the polls and encouraged likely Hillary Clinton voters to vote for a third party candidate who herself got five times more than the margin of victory in a key swing state. So it's, uh, you know, this is something that's not going to be settled for a long time. And there's no credible argument. I don't think that I mean, there, there is no credible argument that the election could or should be undone. But I do think it is worth noting that you have a president out there every day saying that this had no effect and that conclusion has not been reached. And you know, what? and this is going to be a crazy thing to say, but you and I both have, you know, Trump voters in our family and an extended group of people that we grew up with. And, you know, I think this is why they're so defensive about this um, is that they 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 feel like this is some kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, this is us just whining about an election loss. Uh, and I think this is also potentially could explain, uh, some of Trump's behavior here is that his, his ego is so wrapped up in this and he doesn't want, um, the legitimacy of his victory to be called into question, like in the most innocent possible explanation, which once again, I do not, um, I don't buy that explanation. I think it's extremely unlikely, but in the most innocent explanation of this, Trump's behavior could be explained in part by his, uh, you know, his defensiveness around folks saying that he didn't win, like he would have lost this election if he didn't have external help. But like, I think like, like if our, if we have relatives listening here, I think it's important to say that I don't want it to be true that this affected the election. I still don't. I hope that when they run that analysis, it comes back and says, you know what, this was ultimately a big effort, but, uh, Trump would have won either way. Um, I actually hope that's the case because we're not going to undo the election. Uh, and, uh, I don't want it to be true that a foreign government was able to have that big of an influence on our country. Um, and so I don't want it to be true. Um, but I also don't want to sweep it under the rug either. I think that's right. I mean, I think that, uh, it is a worse outcome that Russia succeeded than that Russia failed. Um, nonetheless, they tried and we are now aware that they tried and we know with certainty they're going to continue to try. And the question is, what is the organized United States government response to ensure that with full knowledge that they are going to try to influence the 2018 midterms and the 2020 presidential election? What are we doing to stop it? And what are we doing to highlight what they are doing so that it is clear for all involved that uh, their conduct kind of comes to light and that they face consequences for it? 
Well, I think on that, um, that's a good note to end on. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and you know, we'll get you back on here uh, as soon as we get more documents from Mueller and his team. And, you know, could be a week, could be months, uh, but uh, it, it looks like this isn't going away. Yeah. Okay. Well, happy to come back on anytime and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.